On November 5th, 1872, decades before women won the right to vote, four Portland women arrived at the Morrison Precinct to cast their ballots. When asked why they voted, each responded, I'm an American citizen and have the right to vote. One of these four women was Mary Beatty, a free African-American woman. Taking this step was radical, an act of civil disobedience. Mary Beatty's vote wasn't counted, but she persisted. One year later, Mary Beatty spoke at the first convention of the Oregon State Women's Suffrage Association. In doing so, she showed the crowd that African-American women were wide awake and were willing to voice their interests and fight for their rights. Our guest today, Jean Ward, is a professor emerita of communication at Lewis and Clark College. Professor Ward spent countless hours of research to unearth Mary Beatty's story, despite the whitewashed public records and history books. Her research about Miss Beatty is now published in the Oregon Encyclopedia. This is Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality. We are a podcast series created by lawyers for everyone. We are produced by the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association and the Oregon Historical Society. Our goal is to tackle the sticky questions about democracy through the lens of voting access. I wanted to ask a little bit about you. I saw that you kind of came to this as a professor of communications and having a background in theater and debate and those sorts of things. How was it that you um, came to studying Black history? Well, history has always been important to me. I guess that would be a big part of the response. And rhetoric the study of public discourse within historical context is where I've always focused. And I guess as I move toward thinking more and more about where are the women in all of these stories, it also came to me, it is not just asking the big question, where are the women, more particularly, where are the women of color? I um, I saw that you said in another interview or it was told of you in another article that there was there was some time in the early 1970s that you had this awakening about gender issues and it struck you the importance of telling the stories that hadn't been told and there's that that's another question i have of you is sort of the pairing together of storytelling and history is that something that resonates with you, this idea that, that really you're a storyteller and, and bringing that gift to history and the study of historical records is what really brings history to life? That's a really great way to put it. It resonates for me. The idea of the story, the narrative, really is at the heart of history. And until we uncover those stories we really have cheated ourselves in terms of our own history. Well, and Mary Beatty has quite the story. You know, I I read the article that you put together for the Oregon Encyclopedia, 
And I saw that Ms. Beatty and her husband came to Oregon in 1864. And I spent some time trying to wrap my head around what that must have felt like, <laughs> what, what that context was, and thinking about the legislation and the constitutional amendments that were happening within that next decade around suffrage, but also what Oregon was doing to prevent African Americans from having a life here in Oregon. Can you lay a little kind of context and foundation and paint a picture for us of what it must have been like for Ms. Beatty and her husband to arrive in Oregon. Before we go too far into this, we've got a difficulty here, I think, with the pronunciation of her name. Oh, thank you. And I think we want to go with Beatty, even though it's spelled B-E-A-T-T-Y. One of the questions that was posed early on by an historian named Rosalind Turborg Penn was that she was very interested in Mrs. Beatty. She wrote about this in her history of African-American women because Mary Beatty was clearly one of the first black women to advocate publicly for woman suffrage. But what was her full name? And the argument that uh, Rosalind Turborg Penn was making was that perhaps she was trying to hide her identity by not giving us a first name or even initials, at least in the records that had been published that showed she had been active. So there's the question of what was the first name? What are the initials? How do we pronounce the last name? All of that still coming together as part of a very large jigsaw puzzle. And your question about the historical context at the point of arrival for Mary and James Beatty, about 1864. That's the best I can come with up with as, as the date for arrival. And why would they ever choose Oregon? Now, I'm a native Oregonian. I love Oregon. <laughs> However, if I were faced with even half of the challenges they were faced with, I'm not sure that I would want to reside here. Because in 1864, yes, Oregon had achieved statehood in 1859, but there were still laws on the books which were very discriminatory. And that included um, an exclusion law, which said that unless you were a resident already in Oregon, if you were black, you were not to come and reside in the state. There were also a poll tax and uh, laws against mixed race marriages. Everything signaled don't come. The one positive was Oregon had roundly defeated slavery prior to achieving its constitution as, um, as a state in 1859. I, I found I found it particularly bold and and brave of the Beatties to settle here in Portland because they they are they are people who appear to have their eyes wide open. They left Kentucky as a young married couple and moved to Indiana, and it appeared they left Indiana when Indiana passed a law requiring all African Americans to register to be known. 
And that was a, a, a law that passed that sort of pushed them out of Indiana or that uh, caused them to want to leave Indiana. And that in part is at least speculation on, on my, my side. In 1850, they're married. James is 19. Mary is just 15, soon to be 16, has her father's permission. But they don't stay in Kentucky. The 1850 Kentucky changes to the Constitution, which would not be inviting for any Blacks to remain, and also the National Fugitive Slave Law was of great concern to them, even though both were free persons of color, as it was referred to. Uh, But they hoped for a better life, I'm sure, in Indiana. But they get to Indiana, and Indiana is following suit with what had happened in Kentucky and adding this registration requirement. But James and Mary, this very young couple, determined to have a different life, left Indiana. And the next time we know where they are for sure is Oregon. I can imagine this young couple full of hope, full of promise. They're educated. They come from engaged families with parents who are leaders in their communities, choosing to engage in these, you know, acts of civil disobedience to say that these laws are not right and to uproot their lives and move far from their families to start a new life together. And here they arrive in Oregon in 1864, we think, and they they become engaged in the community here, both as activists and as owners of real estate. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you know of their real estate holdings? The real estate holdings are, I think, remarkable. The use of funds to invest in property seemed to be a way of life. I think a way of looking towards security for the future, that they had faith in real estate, in property. Uh, One of the properties that they purchased early on, and that was purchased by James, was for $800 in what we would now think of as downtown Portland. And it is the property where you now see the Nordstrom store in downtown Portland. So you can think about that as early Beatty property. In fact, in that block, there were several structures lining the entire side of the block. And those were structures that they put up on that property. They started with that. Interestingly, in later years, James sold that property to Mary. So it was in her name. And the two of them often held property in their individual names, as opposed to as husband and wife. These stories of land ownership and of forming these organizations and all of the accomplishment and leadership that we're seeing in the stories is such an incredible example of determination and vision and hope that I, I I really appreciate your digging into because these are these are inspirational and important stories that are truly part of our most important history here in Oregon. I often think of it as people in the wings on a stage. They're off on the wings and they're saying, I'm here too. 
don't forget me. You know, the hands go up and the voices are, are soft. But one of the, the amazing things to me in, in this research is how interconnected the people, the visions, the efforts that they make, and they are stories that, that need to be told. Too often, I think, and I have fallen prey to this myself, we take the story of one and it becomes a narrow, deep, and, and valuable uh, piece of uh, work, narrative, history, whatever you want to call it. But it's beyond that. I think when we look at this as a community, that's how I want to try to tell more of the stories of the African-American community of Portland. I do want to move to talking about the babies as activists. You know, we, we talked in first part about how impressive it was that they were able to acquire land ownership. To me, it seemed like that piece was also interconnected with their role of, as activists in the community that possibly the the land ownership helped them achieve some status that put wind underneath their wings as leaders in social justice and equal rights movements. I did see that one of the most remarkable things here in, in your telling of Mary Beatty's story was her attempt to vote in 1872. Can you tell us that story? Years ago, when I was writing about Abigail Scott Dunaway, who's known as the mother of equal suffrage in Oregon, I came across Mary Beatty's name, but only as Mrs. Beatty. And it was in reference to that voting that you're mentioning. In um, November of 1872, when Abigail Scott Dunaway, Mrs. Beatty, and a Mrs. Lambert and a Mrs. Hendy, both of whom were given initials for their names, which was not the case for, for Mrs. Beatty, the four of them went to the Morrison Street Precinct to cast their votes in the presidential election of, in this election, it was Ulysses S. Grant versus Horace Greeley. So coming out of the Civil War with the 13th Amendment ending slavery and the 14th defining citizenship and the 15th allowing Black males to vote, in 1872, what we had in Oregon was interest by some women and men in women's suffrage. But nothing had been attempted yet, either through the state legislature or as any kind of, there was not at that point a referendum that might have been used to the people to vote. Why was Abigail Scott Dunaway involved with these three women? Two white women, one black woman. Dunaway had come from Albany to Portland in 1871, the year before this vote occurred. And she had come with her family with the intention of starting and editing a newspaper, which she did the New Northwest, and in the New Northwest, which she called a human rights newspaper, she definitely argued for women's suffrage as well as women's rights. Her husband, Benjamin Dunaway, supported her in this effort, and he and Mr. Hendy literally escorted the four women to the Morrison Street Precinct to cast their votes which is a, you know, a visible act of support to anyone who might have seen them or 
might hear about them later. As the description goes, as it was published in the newspapers, the four women were carrying in their right hands their tickets, Republican tickets for Grant, ready to vote, and they were questioned by what were referred to as the judges, meaning the clerks at the precinct. What is your name, please? Where do you reside? And so forth. Most of the newspaper accounts were quite positive, simply reporting that this had occurred. However, they did note that while the tickets, the votes were taken, they were not put into the box, but below the table, which means that they were not really counted. There was one newspaper in Portland, uh, and that's the Democratic Herald, which um, poked a, more than a little uh, fun at these women who seemed to be out of place in what they were doing. Abigail Scott Dunaway obviously chuckled about that, and what she wrote in her newspaper is, we did what we agreed. Well, Portland, we went and voted, and Portland still lives. On the other hand, across the country, the other side of the country, Susan B. Anthony and 14 other women had gone to vote in the same presidential election. They were arrested, and you probably know the story of Susan B. Anthony, who really attempted to use that arrest and trial as a way to make her argument, which was, under the 14th and 15th Amendments, I am a citizen and I should have the right to vote. She knew Abigail Scott Dunaway quite well and had communicated with Dunaway, please ask your readers, please find a way you too should go and vote in this presidential election. So when Dunaway said, we kept our promise, we did what we agreed, it was in fact in part what she'd agreed with Susan B. Anthony that she would do. It was an act of defiance that in fact was picked up even by the New York Times. It does seem like the inclusion of Mary Beatty in Oregon in that effort marked a departure in strategy from that of Susan B. Anthony that uh, I, I saw in other arenas that there were groups of, of African-American women that were organizing and groups of white women that were organizing, but there was some disagreement as to what fight needs to be won first as a matter of strategy, and that there was some concern on a national level that if truly equal suffrage was something uh, that they were fighting for as a priority, it might mean that no one gets it. I was struck by Mary Beatty being a part of that in Oregon and being a leader in that effort as being possibly a more brave and bold effort here in Oregon that might have been not not have been made elsewhere. You're absolutely right. I think that unfortunately there were divisions, some of which were argued in terms of expediency. And I think that's what you're referring to when you talk about Susan B. Anthony and some of the approaches by national leaders in essentially a later later period than what we're looking at with the early 1870s. The movement was very young in the early 1870s. There had been some attempts prior to the Civil War for national women's suffrage efforts, but they waited through the war 
and then began to develop and grow in the late 1860s, early 1870s. Susan B. Anthony had been here in Portland in 1871 in the fall and spent her time for months touring Oregon, Washington Territory, up into Vancouver, B.C., with Abigail Scott Dunaway as her business manager. This is how Dunaway learned a lot about speaking, a lot about organizing, and made a real connection with the woman that most people referred to as Aunt Susan. Now, for the number of months that Anthony was here, with her headquarters being in Portland and with Dunaway, it's highly likely that she met also the other three women who went with Dunaway to the polls the next year. Now, the, the idea of this being different than other parts of the country, there are records that show that there were African-American women and Caucasian women in joint efforts in various places around the country uh, in those early years. It is somewhat unusual to have seen what Mary Beatty did, and that's pointed out by historians like Rosalind Turborg Penn, who who was very interested in wanting to know more about Beatty, but would we ever know anything? Well, now we do know a little more. At the same time, I guess this, this is one of those disturbing questions for which I have no simple answer other than to say expediency unfortunately became a goal of many. I don't know that we can attribute this, however, to Susan B. Anthony alone or to Elizabeth Cady Stanton or to necessarily the entire National Women's Suffrage Association because there were those who argued consistently for women's rights for all. In working with the Oregon Historical Society, I have learned that the only way that we have these brilliant stories is by the tenacity and the determination of scholars like yourself, because these are stories that are not easy to find. Can you tell me a little bit about that process and and what it what it has taken of you of your own grit to uncover and and tell these important stories to which we all owe our gratitude there's a wonderful display for the um, achievement of women's suffrage called nevertheless they persisted an exhibit that Lori Erickson curated and I was able to be a participant um, with others on an advisory committee. And in doing so, as we were combing through and thinking as diligently as possible about, are we including everyone that we possibly can in this story of what happened in Oregon in the quest for suffrage? I came back to Mrs. Beatty, and I say came back because she'd always been there. She'd always been there in the wings for me. Years ago, I had started doing research on Abigail Scott Dunaway, and I had had the privilege to get to know her grandson, who was state archivist. He shared all her materials with me. I can remember we talked about Mrs. Beatty, who was referred to in the New Northwest newspaper of Dunaway, the fact that she'd gone and voted. Who was this Mrs. Beatty? David Dunaway said, I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know who she is. Well. 
there's a reason, I guess, and something that happens with timing. Maybe it's providence. Who knows? But the nevertheless, they persisted exhibit seemed to be the right time to try to put together as much of Mrs. Beatty's story as possible. Thankfully, there are now digitized records, which make research much easier than if I had to go. And of course, given the circumstances of 2020, it's not possible for people to go to archives and to libraries and to use microfilm equipment as as we used to. So there's a lot that's digitized, and there's a lot also that can be done with um, still the good old telephone <laughs> and uh, a handwritten letter once in a while to um, to an archivist in perhaps a, a small library in Kentucky. And in Mary Beatty's case, I started with Portland, where I knew she had been, Portland City Directories, Portland Census Records. Bit by bit, the pieces come together. And sometimes one has to, to pull back and say, this, this is a bit like the Hansel and Gretel story, you know, following the crumbs as you go into the forest. And I think the other thing to remember is not to get lost in the forest and look too much at the trees one way or the other, but realize that there's probably much more to be gathered than what I have gathered already. I know the story is not complete. What role can you define for historians and scholars in telling Black history? What inspiration is there for people like yourself to to dedicate the kind of time and interest that you have put in Mrs. Beatty's case? I guess as I think of this, probably what started me originally to look for the hidden, the forgotten, the hidden the unseen, was an an awakening to the fact that, as far as women were concerned, they were not a part of my history experience. They were not even in the history books when I was teaching high school history. They were not in the uh, rhetorical studies that I looked at when I was in college. Why weren't they? It's, It's that question, where are the women? And that was what drove me first to start looking at the stories of women, places of women, the importance of gender studies, of feminist studies, and doing what I could to contribute in that way. For me, the African-American experience flows from that as well. Where are the African-Americans and what is their experience? I'm not satisfied with a number of 128 African-Americans in Portland, uh, in Oregon as a whole, with a date attached to it. I want to know their stories. I want to know about those 41 men and those 20-some women who were in Portland. And I felt uncomfortable with some of the conclusions drawn and generalizations made about the African-American experience, just as I have about the Chinese experience in Oregon, and I still think we have more to do with the women's story and certainly the African-American story and many others, as opposed to accepting sometimes assumptions and generalizations that were made by people intending goodwill and good work, but may not have gone 
deeply enough into the richness and complexity, complexity of these lives, these stories. Well, and I'll add to that significance because one one thing that has sat with me since reading your work on Mary Beatty is that the hidden stories, the unseen stories are not so because they lack significance, that she was an incredibly significant person in Portland, in Oregon, in her own African-American community, but in the community at large for the role that she played in fighting for women's suffrage. And so I think that's a, a good lesson for us all to take away that sometimes the most important stories, the most inspiring stories, the things we can learn the most from history are maybe not apparent on the surface, but that we have to dig deeper, look further, and know that there are more things to be learned. Yes. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. And Gabriel Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.